This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that's written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. God has given us his revelation. We have it in writing. Because it's in writing, we can verify it, and we can know that it does not change. It is eternal. It is absolute truth. And therefore, we can rely upon it. But because God has revealed himself to us in this way, it is our responsibility to study it. Study of the Word of God is also an act of worship. For when we study the Word of God, we are acknowledging that God has revealed himself, and he is the sovereign. He has the right to rule over us. He has the right to make plans according to his own design. And when we study his word, therefore, we are yielding to him and recognizing his sovereignty. And in this, we also see his provision for us for the time that he has given to us in this world. So as we come to our study of the word of God this morning, let us pray. We give thanks to you, Heavenly Father, that we have the freedom to assemble together. We thank you that we can boldly proclaim Jesus as the only Savior. Father, in this place, we do this with relative ease. We are not in danger. We don't fear intrusion or interruption. And we know that this is a matter of your grace to us. But we recognize also that when people turn against you, turn away from your word, that there is certain judgment. Father, I pray that this day your word would go forth with power across many pulpits in this land, that your people would respond to the teaching of the word, that again they would turn their lives to seeking your approval by doing things in the way that you have required of us so that again we as a people might have your blessing we thank you for the revelation that you've given us things that we could never understand and never figure out through our own mentality our own abilities so we thank you that you have caused them to be written down in permanent form. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who indwells us, who enlightens us to this truth. And so I pray that this day your Holy Spirit will give us greater understanding of the things that we will study so that we might have greater appreciation for the greatness of your grace, the greatness of this salvation that you have given to us in grace, and that when we realize these things, we're going to be motivated to serve you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to take a look at Romans chapter 3 this week and next week. I hope to cover uh, these verses from 19 to 31. And in here we see a courtroom scene. The language in this passage 
is very much forensic, that it is related to legal things, as we will see. Alva McLean, great Bible teacher, wonderful theologian, great writer, and he said this, this section is the very heart of the book of Romans. For this reason, all Christians ought to memorize verses 21 through 26. I would encourage you to do 19 to 28, but uh, if you'll just take these six verses and memorize them, let me give you a little homework for the week. That's not too much. A verse a day, you can do that. Uh, a couple of the verses are quite short anyway, so and some of them you already know. I want to encourage you. Let's go home and memorize these verses. If someone should ask me, Brother McLean, if you could have just six verses out of the Bible and all the rest be taken away, which would you take? I would select these six verses. All of God's gospel, good news, is there. And in a way found nowhere else in the Word of God, the gospel of God's grace is the name of the book that he wrote. And uh, this, this was a great Bible scholar, tremendous teacher. And he said, if, if I could only take six verses, I would take these because they have the gospel encapsulated in them. So we need the gospel. And this is because everyone is a sinner. Everyone is under God's condemnation. In Romans, in the first section, major section, Paul proved the universal sinfulness of humankind. He showed the needs of all people generally. In chapters, uh, chapter 1, verses 18 to 32, there he describes the immoral man, those who reject God in their thinking and the consequences of that rejection. And then he dealt with the sinfulness of self-righteous people, particularly in uh, chapter 2 and the first part of chapter 3, and he set forth principles by which God judges. So he proved the guilt of God's chosen people. He answered several objections that Jews could offer to his argument, and then he concluded by showing the Old Testament also taught the depravity of every human being. All right, now we come to Romans 3.19, he says, we know, so we ought to know this, whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. So Paul declares that whatever law, and here it's a reference to the Old Testament, it's addressed to those who are involved in it and especially uh, this would refer to the Jews. And uh, he's going to say this to take the ground out from underneath uh, any Jewish people who might read this and say, well, when he talks about all of this sinfulness of people, he's talking about ungodly Gentiles. But Paul is going to say, wait a minute, this is talking about Jews. 
And if Jews, who are God's chosen people, can't escape the condemnation on sin, then it must also follow that Gentiles, who have no claim on God's favor, they're also guilty. And so he says that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, why? That every mouth may be stopped. So the result of the condemnation is that no one is going to be able to open his mouth in his own defense. You have nothing to say. There, there will be no refutation of God's charges. There's nothing that you can say in any way to vindicate yourself. Every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. All the world, that's all of humanity. That's Gentiles as well as Jews. And the Gentiles who don't have the law are still guilty before God. This is uh, what Paul writes in Romans chapter 2 and verses 14 and 15. They don't have the law, and yet they're still guilty before God because God has written the law on their hearts so that the whole world might become guilty before God. The word guilty means being liable to judgment, liable to punishment. It means to be accountable. The whole world is accountable to God. The whole world is liable to judgment before God. So when it comes to salvation, it doesn't matter what any person might say. The whole world is answerable to God. Verse 20, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. So the purpose of the law was not to provide people with a series of steps that would lead them to heaven if you do these things, but rather the law is designed to expose man's inability to merit heaven. And Jesus declared that no one carries out the law completely. And this is the statement that is found throughout Scripture. No one can keep the law perfectly. So if someone breaks the law, he's a lawbreaker. It doesn't matter how many you break or do not break. If you break the law, you're guilty. So did you ever break the law? Even once? Well, then you're a lawbreaker. James 2.10 indicates that if you violate the law in just one point, then you're guilty before God. And so the law, it's, it's like a chain. If you break one link, then the chain can't save you. And if you want to earn God's commendation of being perfectly righteous, then you have to obey God's law perfectly. And it's impossible, therefore, to earn justification by performing the works that God requires. Can't do it. So in verse 20, when he says, therefore, it indicates here's a, uh, an explanation. Because by the deeds of the law, or works of law, literally, it is by obedience to the commandments of the law, whether they be moral principles, civil law, or spiritual law, such as Sabbath observance, keeping the holy days, animal sacrifices, and so on. You do those things commanded in the law. That's the works of the law. But by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. Now, no flesh 
course, that is a figure of speech. It means no human being. And when he says no flesh, it means there are no exceptions. Literally, the Greek text here says all flesh will not be justified. So it's all-inclusive. This is universal. There are no exceptions. And then we have the word justified. This is a, a forensic term. It's a legal declaration. To be justified means to be declared righteous so that one who is justified has been declared free from the penalty. And we uh, will take a look at at this in some detail next time, but this, you have to understand, is a legal term. It's something that God says. Now, it is not God making a change in you. That is not justification. There are many people who say, oh, justification, that means God produces a change in the believer so that he's not going to sin or he's not going to sin as much. And he's saying, God has made some kind of a change in you. That is not justification. And all of us who have uh, any awareness of our own sinfulness know that uh, we continue to sin even though we have been declared righteous. So no flesh will be justified in his sight. In his sight, literally in his eyes, it means exposure to a value judgment. It means in the opinion of, in the judgment of God, no flesh will be declared righteous. Why? We have the word for, uh, which introduces an explanation. It expresses the cause or the reason for something. So we can say because or for you see, here's the reason why. For you see, by the law or through the law, this is talking about the Mosaic law. By the law is the knowledge of sin. The word knowledge, epinosis, it can mean a full knowledge, true knowledge, recognition, or consciousness of. It's through the law that man can know that he is guilty before God. The law cannot save. The law cannot justify. The law cannot give spiritual life. The law can't make you spiritual. The law can only condemn. And it's through the law that we recognize that we do not measure up to God's standard. So we as Gentiles, we as members of the church, the body of Christ, we are not under the law that was given by God to Moses. Nevertheless, the law still proves that we are guilty before God. Now, we don't have to keep that law. We don't have to keep the Mosaic law, not any of it. 613 commandments, we don't have to keep any of it. We're under a different law system. But what about the people who are lost today, the people who are unsaved? They're not under the law either. The law still has a function, however. Even though the law has been abrogated, it still has a function of proving that every person is guilty before God. No one is able to keep God's law, and so by the law, 
is the consciousness, the recognition or the true knowledge of sin. Sin, anything that violates the righteousness of God, its performance of any action forbidden by God. And sin is defined by God. It's not defined by man. Now, people today want to define what is sin. They say, well, that's not, that's not sin. That's just not acceptable behavior in certain circles. And there are some who go so far as to say there are no sins. It's just we have a convention uh, in our culture. It may be different from other cultures, but it's not sin. It's just that we don't like certain things to take place, and, and therefore we forbid that. But sin is something defined by God. It is a violation of the righteousness of God. And where there is violation of God's righteous standards, there must also be a penalty. Law has no teeth. It has no value if there is no penalty attached to violation. The law becomes meaningless unless there is judgment that is connected with disobedience. So the law does have a purpose today. We know that the law is good, and we know that by the law is the knowledge of sin. And so it's not a matter of beating people up and saying, oh, you, you haven't kept the law of God, for none of us has kept the law of God. But through God's law, it's easy to demonstrate that all have sinned and need, therefore, a Savior. All right, in verses, uh, starting in verse 21 and going through actually chapter 5, the end of the chapter, we have the imputation of God's righteousness. Man's a sinner. He can't do anything to help himself. He can't be justified by the law. And so if man is ever to have a relationship with God, he has to look to the mercy of God. In a court of justice, when it has been demonstrated that a person is guilty and every defense has failed, only at that point would a person appeal to the just or the mercy of the court. And now Paul has brought us to that point. The world is guilty. Immoral man, religious man, self-righteous man, man with the law, man without the law, all are guilty. And so there's no defense that can be mounted against the charge of guilt before God. All right, in verses 21 through 26, we have the description of justification. So in chapter 1, Paul declared that justification is the very heart of the gospel, The just shall live by faith. Justification is one of those Bible words, and oftentimes people are pretty fuzzy on how to define these terms that we find in Scripture. And one of the reasons why I believe it's so important for us to be very familiar with this passage is we have so many Bible terms related to salvation. We have the terms of salvation, so we have justification, imputation, propitiation, and we need to know what these words mean. 
right in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. All right, but now. Now this is not going to indicate now as opposed to then, but rather it's talking about here's the situation. Here's the reality. And so it refers to God's method of bringing people into right relationship with his, with himself. It's God's method apart from the law. And now we have an expression, righteousness of God. Now there's a big question about this phrase, righteousness of God. The question is, is this talking about righteousness that God possesses as part of his nature? Is this one of the attributes of God? Is that what we're talking about? Or are we talking about a righteousness which has God as its source, a righteousness from the source of God? Now, as we will see as we go through this passage, this verse is not talking about the inherent righteousness of God's character. Rather, it is talking about a righteousness which God provides for those who believe in Jesus Christ. God gives to the believer righteousness as a free gift. So we have to have righteousness in order to get into heaven. You see, Christ on the cross paid the penalty for all sins. He died for all sins. That penalty was paid for. And this is true for all people. All people of all time, Christ paid for their sins. But in order to get into heaven, it's not enough just to have your sins paid for. You have to have righteousness. Righteousness is a requirement for any person to enter into heaven. But you can't produce a righteousness that is acceptable to God. The best you can produce is a human righteousness, a relative righteousness in which you might be better than somebody else, but it will never measure up to God's standard. And in order to get into heaven, you have to have a righteousness that is equal to God's, that is acceptable to God. And the righteousness being talked about here is a righteousness from the source of God. So we're going to translate this. But in fact, a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been revealed. So God is going to give us his righteousness as a free gift. And this righteousness had been revealed. It was revealed in the Old Testament, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Now, the word righteousness is used with three distinct meanings in the New Testament. God himself is said to be righteous, that's part of his nature. It's part of his uh, perfection, his glory, his absolute perfect character. Secondly, there is righteousness that belongs to us. This is self-righteousness, human righteousness. Uh, Paul talks about 
my own righteousness. His own righteousness that he produced by being a Pharisee, by doing good works, by keeping the law. He said, that's my own righteousness, and it's not good enough. Or in Romans 10, too, he talks about Israel. He said, they went about seeking to establish their own righteousness. But that will never be good enough, no matter how good man is. His righteousness will never meet God's standard. And then we also have the righteousness of God, which is said to be imputed to the one who believes. So in verse 22, as we will see, there is a righteousness from God, which is to all and on all who believe. So in Romans 3.21, Paul is referring to that righteousness of God, which is imputed, credit to the account of the one who puts faith in Christ for salvation. So we can translate this verse, a righteousness from God, So I hope you'll make note of this. It's not describing the character of God, but the righteousness that he will give as a free gift to all who believe. And so this righteousness is not what is produced by the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. It's certainly unrelated to self-righteousness in every form. It's not related to right conduct, but it is what we become when we are vitally united with Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21, He who knew no sin, Christ, was made sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. So here in Romans 3.21, Paul is referring to that righteousness of God imputed to the person who puts his faith in Christ for salvation. Now, he says that this is uh, a righteousness which is apart from the law. Uh, When he says it's apart from the law, he means it occurs separately, in separation from the law. It's not connected to the law. It has no relationship with the law uh, with regard to man's performance or doing anything of the law. Now, he says this righteousness from God is... Revealed. Let me go back. All right, it is revealed. It's a perfect tense. It has been revealed. It was revealed in the past with the result that it continues to remain revealed forever. The Old Testament revealed that this would be God's method even before Christ came They understood if you put faith in the Savior that God has promised, he will give you his righteousness. Now, this will go back to uh, Genesis 15.6. What does the Scripture say? And we will see this hopefully in Romans chapter 4 next week. What does the Scripture say? That is always our appeal. No matter what man says, what does the Scripture say? The Scripture says Abraham believed God and it was credited to his account for righteousness. It was imputed to him for righteousness. So this righteousness from God is not a new doctrine. It's not a specific church age doctrine. It was revealed in the law 
and the prophets. So the word being witnessed, uh, this again is language of a courtroom. It means to confirm or to attest something on the basis of personal knowledge or belief. It does mean to bear witness. It means to be a witness. And so this righteousness is witnessed by the law and the prophets. Now, the law and the prophets, that's a reference to the Old Testament. Sometimes the Old Testament is referred to as law. Sometimes the Old Testament is divided into two broad categories, law and prophets. Sometimes there is a threefold division, the law, the prophets, and the writings. But here we have a reference to the two sections of the Old Testament, the Law and the Prophets, the Law being the first five books, those written by Moses. And then you have the rest of the Old Testament referred to by the prophets. Now, this statement that it is being witnessed by the Law and the Prophets uh, prepares the way for chapter 4. Now, under the law, there is a requirement that every matter must be established by two or three witnesses. This is stated over and over again in the law itself. It's also found in Hebrews 10.28. For an issue to be decided, there can't be just one witness. There must be a minimum of two, better three, witnesses. So Paul here has said, we have witnesses, we have the law, we have the prophets, and in chapter 4, he demonstrates these two witnesses. The witness from the law is going to be uh, Abraham, he was under the law, uh, or he's found in that section known as the law, and uh, this will go back to Genesis chapter 15, and then uh, the prophets, David is going to be the witness who is cited from that portion of the Old Testament known as the prophets. So we have a courtroom situation. The law is the standard by which men are judged. The world is guilty before God. Every mouth is stopped. No defense. But there has always been the way of salvation. Therefore, man has no excuse ever. Why? Because God's salvation has been revealed. So the reality is this. A righteousness from God was revealed in the Old Testament, and there are witnesses to this fact. And now Paul begins to explain about this righteousness. Oh, by the way, here are a couple of verses you might jot down to note that righteousness is a gift. It's not something we produce, but rather something that God gives to us. Romans 5.17 talks about the gift of righteousness. We get it as a gift, which means we don't pay for it, we don't earn it, we don't deserve it. Or in Philippians 3.9, a very clear declaration. Paul says that I might be found in him not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Do you see that? You see, there are people today who 
say, well, yes, you can believe in Christ, but then you're going to have to validate your faith by good works. You're going to have to prove that you had a sincere faith or a deep faith or a genuine faith. This is all non-biblical verbiage. And then there are those who say, well, now, you put faith in Christ, but you're going to have to do good works after that in order to maintain your salvation. And what they fail to realize is that we have to have a righteousness acceptable to God, which we cannot produce, and God gives it to us. I am going to go to heaven because I am righteous. Not my righteousness, but God gave me righteousness as a gift when I put faith in Jesus Christ. You see, when we put faith in Christ, God does more than 50 things for us all at once. He doesn't just give us eternal life. He doesn't just take away our sins. He gives us many, many things. And one of those wonderful truths revealed in Scripture is God gives us righteousness as a free gift. And that's why I'm going to go to heaven. I'm going to go because God has given me this wonderful gift. All right, in verse 22, even the righteousness of God, and again we have this expression which should be righteousness from God, righteousness from the source of God. Even the righteousness from God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. So how do we receive this righteousness? It's through faith in Jesus Christ. God's righteousness becomes our possession through faith in Christ. Uh, He will state this again in uh, verse 28 or Galatians 2.16 knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified in God's sight. So it's through faith in Christ. Now, this word faith, you may have a translation that translates this, uh, the faithfulness of Christ. Um, And they say, well, this is talking about the the faithfulness of Christ in fulfilling the Father's plan uh, of going to the cross. And, of course, Jesus was faithful in fulfilling the Father's plan. But Paul here is not talking about the faithfulness of Christ, but the fact that we must put our faith in Jesus Christ in order to receive this gift of righteousness. And on that basis, God will justify or declare us righteous. So here Paul introduces faith and the object of faith. This is the first time he very clearly spells it out. Here is the object of our faith that will result in salvation. Now, Paul never says that people obtain salvation because of their faith in Christ. That would encourage the idea that our faith makes a contribution to our salvation or that somehow faith is meritorious. Faith simply takes what God gives. It doesn't add anything to the gift. We are saved through faith. We are not saved by faith. Faith doesn't save. No, Jesus saves. 
You see, there's a big difference. You can have the greatest faith in the world, but if you put it in the wrong object, you have nothing but condemnation. It's Jesus who is the Savior. So, uh, faith is the instrument whereby we can appropriate God's righteousness. So faith doesn't do any work to earn salvation. It only accepts a gift that someone else provides. And so the merit in faith always is in the object, never in the subject, and never in the act of believing. Now, who gets this righteousness from God? He says, to all and on all who believe. So we have righteousness from God to all and on all believers, all the believers, it says literally. Now, some translations, you may have one that omits the phrase upon all, but it is found in the uh, majority of manuscripts. It's found in the majority text. And so we have here a repetition to all and on all. And the repetition of all makes this very emphatic. Righteousness from God is to all the believers. It's on all the believers. Why? For there is no difference. And again, we have this word for used to express a clarification. And sometimes uh, this word for is repeated as it is in this passage. And uh, he's trying to confirm something. He's saying it again and again. For you see, there is no difference. There's no distinction. Difference in what? Well, difference between Jews and Gentiles concerning uh, the need for salvation. Paul said back in verse 9 that all Jews and Gentiles are under sin. And so there's also no distinction regarding the manner by which Jews and Gentiles obtain salvation. Whether you're a Jew, whether you're a Gentile, you have to have imputed righteousness to qualify for heaven. There is no difference. And now we come to the verse you all know. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now this verse is so well known uh, perhaps we don't even think too much about it uh, or what it's saying. But I have a question for you. Is this talking about believer or unbeliever? In this context, to whom is this addressed? Well, of course, it's universal. It's all. The whole world is guilty before God, but... Paul is digging deeper here. He's revealing the incredible scope of God's plan of salvation. God's righteousness is given to all who believe without distinction because all sinned. And again, we, we start out with this word for, which express, expresses a clarification or an explanation. For you see, all have sinned. All have sinned. It's an aorist tense. It's exactly the same phrase found in Romans 5.12, which says, Wherefore is by one man sin entered into the world and death through sin. So death passed upon all men because all sinned. This is exactly the same phrase. All sinned. 
all sinned when Adam sinned. So this is not here speaking about personal sins. Oh, you sinned. You stole something. You told a lie. You uh, did something that God forbids. That's not what this is saying. All sinned when Adam sinned. We're, we're born sinners because we were in Adam and therefore we are accounted as sinners. That's the whole subject of Romans 5, 12 to 31, which uh, you, you ought to become very familiar with. All sinned. We became sinners. Why? Because of Adam's disobedience. That's how we became sinners. So all sinned and fall short. Now the word fall short is a present tense which indicates continuing action. The word fall short means to miss out on something through one's own fault. You, you fall short of something and it's your fault. The present tense indicates ongoing action. We all sinned in Adam and we continue falling short of the glory of God in present time. So today, we continue to fall short. And if you're honest, you'll say, oh yeah, I, I did that on the way to church this morning, or I had some problems when I got up. Or We continue falling short every day. So we all sinned in Adam, but we are continuing to fall short of the glory of God. We continue today. So all have to come to faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. Why? Because all sinned, and that constitutes us as sinners, and all keep on falling short or lacking God's glory. So the glory of God refers to the majesty of his person, talking about his perfect character. Sin separates people from fellowship with a holy God. We lack the character of God because we have sinned in Adam. So we sinned in Adam and therefore we lack the character of God. We're sinners. But we lack fellowship with God, relationship with God, because we continue to sin. So the all who believe in verse 22... God's righteousness is to all who believe. These are also the ones who have sinned and who continue to fall short of the glory of God. So we have the righteousness of God because we believed in Christ, but we continue to fall short. So those who fall short are also those who are justified while they are falling short. Now, Romans 3.24, okay, he just said all have sinned and are falling short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. This creates a lot of problems for the interpreter. A great problem. How does verse 24 relate to verse 23? He just said, all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace. 
And uh, so there's been a lot of confusion about how this verse relates to verse 23. Now, grammatically, it's very clear. But theologically, it's not very clear. And so people, because they don't like the very clear statement found in the grammar, they they tap dance around the interpretation of this passage um, because it says, all have sinned, being justified freely by his grace. So how are these statements related? Well, it's all who believe, who receive justification, even though all sinned and are falling short of the glory of God. Martin Luther came up with a very elegant phrase. Simul justus et peccator. Beautiful. And it means simultaneously justified and sinful at the same time. (laughs) I'm declared righteous, but I'm still sinning. Is that right? Can that be right? Yes. Have you been declared righteous by God? Have you been justified? Do you still sin? Of course. So you see, there are many people, they don't like this expression, justified and sinning at the same time. That that just doesn't sit well with our theology oftentimes, unless we understand the plan of salvation and understand the grace of God. God declares us righteous when we put faith in Jesus Christ. God does not make us righteous. If he made us righteous, we wouldn't continue to fall short of the glory of God. If God had made us righteous, we we wouldn't be sinning all the time. But we are sinning simultaneously with being justified. Justification is an act. It's a declaration by God. It is not a process. Okay, let's get this. Justification is not a process. It takes place in a moment of time, that moment of time when you put faith in Jesus Christ to save you from the penalty of your sin. God declares that you are righteous. How can he do that? Well, the explanation for that will be found in chapter 4, with the doctrine of imputation. God credits his righteousness to our account when we believe in Jesus Christ. So this word to justify doesn't mean to make righteous or holy, but to declare that one is righteous. And God can say this and not be a liar because he gives us his righteousness. So if I give you a million dollars... you have that money, then I can declare you to be wealthy. Would that be a statement that's true? Yes. If you have that money, it would be a true statement. God gives us his righteousness, and he declares us to be righteous. So justification describes a person's status in the sight of the law. It's not a statement about your character. So the condition of your character and conduct, now that's related to sanctification. We can't confuse those two. And a lot of people do that today, and it just results in tremendous confusion. 
and also a very uh, mixed up spiritual life. So we uh, we see here in this verse that we are justified freely. The word freely means as a gift, literally. The Greek text freely here is as a gift. You don't pay for it. You don't work for it. We have been declared righteous as a gift. And then... (laughs) He goes on, and it's actually a pleonasm here. He says, by his grace, if it's as a gift, of course it's gracious. But he goes on, he says, it's as a gift by his grace. Grace, that which we receive from God, paid for by Jesus Christ, that which we receive that we don't earn, deserve, work for, that's grace. How are we justified? How are we declared righteous? As a gift. It's by his grace. That's God's wonderful plan for us. And we have this. Now, Paul has yet a lot to say. And next week, uh, we want to go through and, and look at the rest of this passage. And we need to understand these terms. We are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. What is redemption? And then in the next verse, he will say, whom God set forth as a propitiation. Practice saying that word before next week, okay? Propitiation. (laughs) What does that mean? So we'll look at those things next time. Shall we pray? Father in heaven, we give thanks that you are the God of grace. We have not earned or deserved anything from you. We deserve judgment. We thank you that you have this great plan of salvation. It's always been this way, even from the beginning. People, even in the Old Testament, understood that you would impute righteousness on the basis of faith. I thank you that it's not dependent upon us, our merit, our works, our ability to keep the law, but entirely upon who you are. So I thank you that you will give us your righteousness as a free gift. And because we possess that righteousness, we have the right to enter into heaven. And so we thank you for the righteousness which is imputed to us. Father, I pray that you will help us to understand these things, to apply these things, May it give us courage. May it give us strength as we consider our own sinfulness, our struggle with sin. We know that oftentimes we're rebellious, and yet we thank you that Christ died for all sins, and though forgiveness is available. But we thank you that even though we continue to fall short of your glory, nevertheless we can have absolute confidence that we have been declared righteousness righteous because of your imputation. Father, I pray that you will continue to work in us and through us that we might fulfill your purpose and glorify the one who loved us and gave himself for us, even Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.